0: Uh, Dr. Anna Lemke is our speaker today. She's a professor in psychiatry. Yeah, psychiatry of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's a specialist in the opioid epidemic in the United States. Uh, she's also an author. She published Drug Dealer MD, New York Times bestseller dopamine nation, which you can get on our website slash anywhere you get books and uh yeah and i actually just watched the documentary that you featured today as well so um yeah uh, dr lemke we're incredibly grateful you're here today thank you for taking the time sorry for bothering you for the last few weeks but i'm incredibly grateful so please take as long as you need and if you have to go at any time that's cool as well Then we'll do a bit of q a afterwards so thank you thank you dr lemke
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Mark. I'm really um, honored and delighted to be here. And thank you to all of you for showing up today virtually. Um, it's a Saturday morning for me. So uh, wherever you are and whatever time it is, I just appreciate that you took the time to come. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit different today. I didn't want to give my usual shtick on, on dopamine and what happens in the brain uh, in terms of how we process pleasure and pain. Um, instead, I wanted to talk about um, what I have seen over the course of my career is the importance of honesty and truth-telling, uh, not just in recovery, but also for a life well lived. Uh, before I get into that though, I do want to reflect a moment on Penny's um, question about can you get a hit of dopamine from being naughty and that I think dovetails nicely with uh, the name of this group, which I guess is includes in it uh, this idea that this is a group for th- free thinkers. Um, and then the comment in the chat from Anna saying an antisocial act by an antisocial person would raise their dopamine, I would guess. And so those three things combined, I think I'm gonna riff on that for just a minute um, before we get into the honesty thing, because I think it's an interesting intersection of ideas here. Um, This idea of like, what does it mean to go against the grain and to be brave enough or naughty enough or antisocial enough, however you want to conceptualize that, to say something that is opposite of the prevailing wisdom. And my take on that um, from an evolutionary perspective is that we need people like that. Because we as a society, what happens uh, is that we get these narratives going that just become the prevailing narrative, a kind of hegemony of what's allowed to be said and not allowed to be said. And so we need people who are not just willing to speak their truth counter to that narrative, narrative, but also potentially get off on doing that. Um, And I would argue that um, people with addiction, if I had to say, There were two dominant personality characteristics in my two plus decades of practice. Uh, The first would be um, a kind of avoidant coping style. So people who on the one hand don't want to deal with what's happening in their lives. So they avoid the conflict rather than taking it on. But the other dominant theme or characteristic I see is uh, people who don't like other people telling them what to do. And in fact, when other people say go right, they will really be interested in going left just because somebody said uh, you can't go right. And that's I see again and again as a recurring theme among patients with addiction, which I haven't fully explored, but which I think is really, really interesting. um, And I'm sure uh, plays into the ways that people get into recovery as well. Um, and the different modes through which people succeed in recovery, depending upon how strong that personality trait is for them. So I'm just going to end it there because I don't really have too much more to say about that, except that um, it is a recurring theme in my work with people with addiction. I certainly have that strain in my personality uh, myself. I also don't like people telling me what to do. And when my daughter was about four years old or five years old, (laughs) she said, mom, you know, I really don't like when other people tell me what what to do. And I was like, yep, you come by that very honestly. So what I wanna talk about um, for a little while, and then I really just wanna open it up to any dialogue uh, that we could have or questions you might have, is I wanna talk about um, honesty or truth telling. And one of the things that I've observed in my patients over 25 years is that the patients who get into recovery and stay in recovery are typically, um, and almost universally, patients who have discovered that they need to tell the truth if they're going to be able to maintain their recovery. And it's not just the truth about their addiction, they have to tell the truth about everything, even really little things that seem inconsequential, but especially things which uh, lie, small lies, that we all engage in to kind of hover up, cover up our mistakes or shortcomings. Um, and that this kind of what I call radical truth telling or the embracing of the idea that I must really uh, put in effort to tell the truth works on many different levels. First of all, um, it, it's actually very hard to tell the truth. The average adult tells one to two lies per day. Usually these are small lies, um, like about why we were late for a meeting or, you know, um, how much work we had to do or what have you. But we all we all tend to tell these little lies that we don't even really observe. So then the question becomes: how and why does truth telling help help with recovery and also help us live better lives? I think this is a really important question for the time that we live in now. So the first the first level on which truth telling works, I think, is just simple awareness. When we have to tell another human being what we really did, um, it becomes real to us in a way that it's not when it's pinging around in the dark recesses of our minds. And this is a literal awareness. It's not. It's it's non trivial. It's like we really don't see it. Until we've given it language, language is a very sophisticated tool, uh, stories or maps. And until we tell somebody else using language, where we've been, what we've done, um, we, in, a, in a funny way, it doesn't it hasn't really even happened in our minds. So awareness is key. And where this awareness is probably taking shape from a neurobiological level is in the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is this large gray matter area right behind our foreheads that has been shown to be important for autobiographical narratives. So the way we tell the stories of our lives, it's important for delaying gratification, and it's important for appreciating future consequences. And the prefrontal cortex is connected by... Communication neurons with the deeper limbic structures, or what we sometimes refer to as the lizard brain. These are our deep emotional structures. And it's the com- connection or combination of the limbic brain and the prefrontal cortex together that makes up our reward pathway, which is so fundamental to the experience of not just pleasure, but also pain, and also is the circuit that goes wrong in the process of becoming addicted. How it goes wrong, very broadly speaking, is that either we've got a problem with the prefrontal cortex, which acts as the brakes on the car, or we've got a problem with the accelerator, uh, which is the limbic brain, the lizard brain, which acts like, you know, which is an acceleration on the car. So what may be happening with radical truth-telling is that we are strengthening the prefrontal cortex. And in doing so, strengthening the brakes on our metaphorical car that constitutes our reward pathway. And it makes sense that the part of the brain that's involved in delaying gratification or appreciating future consequences would need to be strengthened in order for us to be able to manage our consumptive habits. So I want to share with you what I think was a really fascinating uh, study that was done in Europe where they were exploring the neural correlates of uh, lying by having individuals engage in a die rolling task where they could win money if the die that they rolled matched the number that came up spontaneously on a computer screen. Um, but they, unlike a casino, they could lie about what they got on the die because uh, you know, it was just them in the room with the computer screen. And it turns out that most of the participants did lie. Um, And they could figure that out based on the statistical average that you would expect from what the die would show. So they just could, by math, they they could show that people lied about 60% of the time, which was, again, not a huge surprise because people lie. Then they did something very interesting and they took a transcranial magnetic stimulator, which is essentially a way of using a magnet to create an electrical current in the brain because our brain is really just a bundle of wires. Uh, and they put that magnet on the prefrontal cortex to stimulate the prefrontal cortex and get things going, get the blood flow going, get the electrical conductivity going. And then they had the participants engage in that die rolling task again. And what they found was that lying went down. So. That's pretty fascinating. By stimulating the prefrontal cortex with a magnet, what they saw is that people lied less. And I think you could really take that and flip that on his head and suggest that if from the top down we can make people lie less, is it possible that if we get people to tell the truth through active engagement with the value or idiom of truth-telling being important, will we get a bottom-up process of people uh, strengthening their prefrontal cortex. And I think that that's what's happening um, and that I I corresponded with the, the authors of that study and they agreed that that might well be happening um, to partially explain why it is uh, that uh, when people who are trying to get into recovery commit to truth telling, what they may be doing is strengthening their prefrontal cortex. Um, The other way in which I think this happens is remember the prefrontal cortex is also important to uh, the process of creating autobiographical narratives or the stories that we tell about our lives. And I have heard uh, in my career, as you can imagine, tens of thousands of personal narratives. And another thing that I've observed. Is that there are healing narratives and then there seem to be destructive narratives or uh, narratives that are antithetical to hearing, to healing. And and one of the biggest things that I listen for, because it's such a recurring theme, is um, whether or not that individual sees what they have contributed to their life's problems or perpetually sees themselves as the victim of other people or circumstance. And I can tell you, as people move from their addiction into recovery, that narrative changes. And the way that it changes is that that it goes from a narrative in which they are the victim to a narrative in which they accept their responsibility, uh, such, such as it is for their life problems and circumstances. So that's very interesting to me, too, because it speaks to the power of autobiographical narrative. It suggests that we're always rewriting these narratives and in the process, shifting our identity and our story in the world. And that the way that we tell our story has a big impact, not just on the way we understand the past, but actually on the choices that we make going forward. So in other words, these autobiographical narratives are not just a way to organize past events. They're actually roadmaps for the future and in telling narratives that adhere more closely to the true course of events in which we all contribute in some way, even if just minimally, to what happens to us. What, ha- what what the result of that is, is that we then have access to more data with which we can make better informed decisions going forward. Whereas if, for example, we continue to see ourselves in this victim role, then we will perpetuate our victimhood going forward. And I've seen that um, again and again. So uh, we've got radical truth telling as promoting awareness. We've got radical truth telling as a way to strengthen the prefrontal cortex quite literally on a neurobiological level. We've got radical truth telling as a way to create more valid autobiographical narratives which help guide us going forward. Um, The other way in which autobiographical narratives, I think, are really powerful is that they create a plent, I mean, sorry, true telling is very powerful, is that it creates what I call a plenty mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. And so to describe that, I want to tell you about a famous experiment that was done many years ago here at Stanford called the Marshmallow Experiment, in which children between about the ages of three and six were put in a room by a researcher sat down at a table, Um, there was nothing in the room except the table and chairs and a plate and a single marshmallow on that plate. And the researcher said to them, I'm gonna leave you in here for 15 minutes. And if you can go that whole 15 minutes without eating this marshmallow, uh, then when I come back, I'm gonna give you a second marshmallow and then you're gonna get two marshmallows. But if I come back in that 15 minutes and you've already eaten the marshmallow, you're not gonna get any more marshmallows. And then they basically tested a whole bunch of kids and tried to look at, you know, which kids could do it and which kids couldn't and how long they could wait and what were the correlates. And what they discovered, first of all, was that some kids could wait and other kids could not. And that the biggest predictor of who could wait and who couldn't was simply age. So older kids could wait an, a longer and were more likely to be able to wait the full 15 minutes to get a second marshmallow. Younger kids were more likely to eat it, eat it sooner or eat it right away. And then as they followed these kids prospectively in their lives, they found that the longer you could wait for a marshmallow, the more likely you were to graduate from high school, go to college, uh, end up in you know uh, getting a, a job, earning a living, all that, all those kinds of things that we think of as associated with you know success in life. Um, then there was a variation on this experiment, which is not um, not well known, but which is fascinating. Um, and in this variation on the experiment, what they did was they took half of the group and they said to them, um, "Here's the marshmallow and here's a bell." And if you ring that bell at any time in those 15 minutes, I'm going to come back, okay? Um, So if you need me for any reason, just ring the bell and I'll be back. And in half of the kids, when the kid rang the bell, the researcher came back. But in the other half, the researcher didn't come back. And you will not be surprised to learn that if the kid rang the bell and the researcher didn't come back, in other words, if the kid was lied to about what that adult would do, uh in response to their actions the kid was much more likely to eat the marshmallow and not be able to wait uh for the full 15 minutes and you know when we think about why that would be why why would a kid who was lied to be more likely to uh not be able to delay gratification or or be more likely to try to instantly gratify themselves um, I mean, there's some, you know, intuitive sense there that, first of all, we know that when people are under stress, uh, even including animals, if you give an animal, you know, a very painful foot shock, they will immediately run to a lever where they know they can get cocaine and they will try to press the lever to get cocaine. If you've got a kid who's uh, been lied to and is experiencing stress, they'll be more likely to eat the marshmallow as a, as a way to rele- alleviate that stress. But the other way in which I think this probably works is the sense in which when people around us are lying, we are much less able to delay gratification because we can't rely on people doing what they said they were going to do at some unknown point in the future. So it is to say that if people lie to us, it creates a kind of scarcity mindset where we have to be in survival mode, grabbing whatever we can right now, because we don't have confidence that in the future, the world will be a predictable, reliable and caring place. By contrast, if we're surrounded by people who are telling the truth, who do what they say they were going to do, who show up when they said they were going to show up and show up on time, uh, were much more able to delay gratification uh, and rely on some unknown future um, being being a a place where we're going to get our needs met. So in a funny kind of way, you know, when we're deep in our addiction, we're we're actually in a scarcity mindset, right? Even though we're bombarding our brains with dopamine um, in these high reward stimuli, we always have the sense of scarcity that there's never going to be enough. And likewise, lying creates that same sense of scarcity, uh, which can promote addiction. Whereas the opposite, um, an environment of truth telling gives us confidence in other people, in an unknown future. And with that kind of ability to be confident in other people, we're much better able to delay um, gratification of our own immediate uh, sensory rewards. And then finally, um, I think, you know, maybe the most important uh, piece of radical truth-telling is the ways in which it gives us access to healthy levels of dopamine. And how does it do that? Well, we all of us um, have in our minds that if we reveal to other people um, the the shameful things that we've done, that they will hate us uh, or shun us or, um, you know, lash out, retaliate, take revenge, any number of things um, that, that we imagine. And we, and we very quickly can escalate to that. But very often the opposite is true. And that when we are gen- gen- genuinely, you know, um, um, letting people know the ways in which we've made mistakes and plan to make amends for those mistakes. What happens is that it brings people closer and it creates intimacy. And we know that when we have that you know, intimacy explosion, it releases oxytocin, a love hormone, which actually binds to dopamine-releasing hormones in the reward pathway. And then becomes a very powerful alternative source of pleasure or reward that then builds ongoing intimacy, which of course is a wonderful antidote uh, to addiction. And I can just share from recent personal experience. Uh, my daughter, who's a runner, Mark knows this, um, about a year and a half ago, she had sustained a um a running injury. And you know, it made her sad and anxious, and it made me sad and anxious for her. But at one point I had the sense that she was not, she was still injured and in pain, even though we'd gone to the doctor, et cetera. And she wasn't telling me about it. So I took to reading her diary, something I am not proud of. Um, but I just became convinced or had convinced myself that I needed to read her diary in order to know what was going on with her injury. And of course, in that process, discovered number one, that I featured nowhere in her diary, which was a huge shock to me, <laughs> but also a very good lesson of, how I actually rank in importance in her life, um, but number two, it didn't really alleviate my anxiety and actually complicated our communication because then I knew things about her that she hadn't told me, which was very weird and confusing for our relationship. Anyway, at some, but it became really uh, a compulsion for me because I, um, one of my many addictions is I'm addic- addicted to my own anxious ruminations about my children. And in a bizarre kind of a play, way, that's my happy place. And this was a compulsion related to my own anxious ruminations. But eventually, to fast forward, I, I, I realized I needed to stop reading her diary. I needed to, need to tell her and apologize. And I was terrified, just absolutely terrified. My daughter's uh, 16. Oh, wait, no. She's just, well, this is a little bit. She's just turned 18. So she was probably 16 and a half, 17 then. And I was just certain that it would like be the end of our relationship and she would never speak to me again. And, you know, it doesn't always work out this way, but I'm very glad to say that I did finally tell her the truth and told her that I I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. And to my great surprise um, and humility, she came over and gave me a big hug and said, you know, that's really not cool. And that's a really bad thing you did, but you know, I love you. So um, it's wonderful when it works out that way. Um, and I think it very often more often than we think it really can work out that way. And that's a you know a wonderful dopamine uh, explosion that that intimacy. So I think I'll go ahead and stop there. Um, hopefully, I've given you um, some food for thought to think about why why it is that um, radical honesty and radical truth telling is not just good for recovery but good for us and our
2: relationships overall, even though it's hard.
0: Cool. Thank you, Anna. First off, she should have hit it better anyway. So, but, uh, Yeah, I do actually have one question. Uh, what is the biggest dopamine hit? Does it depend on the person or does it depend on the addict? What's the story there?
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Uh, what is the biggest dopamine hit? Because a lot of times, um, you know, if you look at some of the animal literature where they put a probe in a rat's brain and measured how much dopamine is released above baseline firing. Cause we're always releasing dopamine at a kind of tonic baseline level. You know, you'll get pretty consistent results that like chocolate increases dopamine firing 55% above baseline. Um, you know, sex is a hundred percent, nicotine is 150% and all, all the way on up for there. there. But in truth, that's really an oversimplification because it doesn't account for the very important concept of drug of choice. Uh, which gets back to, you know, what Penny was saying earlier, um, asking, you know, do some people get a dopamine hit from being naughty? And and it depends on our unique wiring. Uh, You can imagine from an evolutionary perspective, it would make sense that different people had different drugs of choice, right? You want some people to be going for you know, sex to find partners to procreate for the tribe, but you don't want everybody doing that. You want other people who like meat and other people who are interested in uh, sweet berries. And then together, you know, as a a tribe, you you get all the resources that you need. Um, So it really is very much a function of drug of choice um, rather than, uh, you know, what is the most addictive drug. But having said that, what technology has allowed for in the last 200 years is to take all kinds of drugs, uh, including drugs that have been around for millennia, and make them much, much, much more potent than they ever were before. And so now they release not just more dopamine than our own endogenous um, brains would release under normal circumstances, which is why they're addictive, right? Because we, we have our own endogenous opioids, our own endogenous cannabinoids, our own endogenous norepinephrine or stimulating um, neurotransmitters. What addictive substances and behaviors do is they mimic the chemicals our brain already makes, but many, many, many times stronger. Um, and so what we've seen is not only a proliferation. In the drugification of all kinds of substances and behaviors from our food supply to gambling, gambling, pornography, but also a potentiation or making more potent drugs like opioids, cocaine, alcohol, nicotine, cannabis that have been around for a long time. Um, So now we're all more vulnerable to addiction and even people who were relatively immune to the problem of addiction are now much more vulnerable because of the increased potency of traditional drugs and the proliferation of drugs that didn't exist before, like, for example, social media.
0: Cool. Uh, thank you for that. And I, I have one last question is, well, around about the victim to hero when they were talking about like, themselves, that's that because they just keep um, telling their story, let's say, like, the you know, doing a lead or whatever our chairs will stay in ireland is that what what you mean by that like they're getting comfortable with themselves
1: so say it again mark it's it's a little bit um okay
0: so you're on about like people talking about becoming a victim slash a hero is that because they're just getting used to themselves or whatever or just telling the story out loud or how does that work you know
1: what i think I, we, You know, our, our minds and, and language are fascinating things, and we, we cannot exist without language. And one of the ways that we use language is to create these mental frameworks that we then put onto the world. We do this unconsciously. So what I'm trying to say is that um, one of the mental frameworks that has become quite prevalent, but also I think we have a natural tendency to create this framework is a framework in which the good stuff that happens is all me and the bad stuff that happens is all somebody else's fault. And so if I was engaged in anything bad, it's because I was forced to that uh, by the circumstances or by other people. Um, And that's relevant for addiction in particular, because You know, I have to keep drinking or using because this happened to me and that happened to me. Um, So what I see in, in what I've seen in clinical practice, again, is people who come in with this victim narrative framework, I know immediately they are number one, not in recovery and not likely to get into recovery anytime soon. Whereas the people who are in good recovery, don't tell their stories that way. Um, they tell these stories that just ring truer, which is to say they may indeed have been victimized, sometimes horribly, but now in their adulthood, you know, they are also seeing the ways that perhaps they are perpetuating uh, those these kinds of victimization onto other people, or what what have you. Um, so so that's really what. And then as as people get from the disease, disease of addiction into recovery. The narratives transform. So, part of what we're trying to do, whether it's in individual psychotherapy or through 12 steps, is in a way get people to write, rewrite their personal autobiographies or tell their stories differently or use a different frame on the world or at least be sensitive to the type of frame that they reflexively will put onto the. Let me give you a sort of very quickly personal example. As I write about in in Dopamine Nation, my mother and I have had a very fraught relationship our whole lives. Um, And even to this day, it's difficult, although we, you know, we manage to be kind to each other, which is very nice. But one of the things that, and, and one of the things that absolutely drives me crazy about my mom is that she is in my opinion, not a good communicator. So I will send her an email and I will have several questions on there and she will respond to the email maybe, but she won't answer any of the questions on the email or she might not respond at all. And this drives me absolutely nuts because I'm also controlling and compulsive and it makes me crazy. And I'm also super conscientious. So I'm always bending over backwards to respond to people's emails and she doesn't even bother to respond to mine. You can tell by my expression, right? I'm already doing my reflexive thing where I'm blaming her, right? And getting annoyed. And then about two years ago, it was an important email. She was something she needed from me in order to fulfill her need. I needed her to answer these questions. And I sent her an email. One week passes, she doesn't respond. Two week passes. Four weeks, she doesn't respond. I'm like complaining viciously about her to my husband, which he's heard enough over the years, Right. And then one day I happen to be in my email and I see my email in the outbox that I had never sent to her. So that is what I'm talking about. Like we have this worldview in a way it protects us and then we do things to make it true going forward. So I had never sent the email with questions from my mom to my mom. So of course she couldn't have responded to it, but in my doing that, you know, unconsciously, I was validating my view of her, my worldview, this idea that she's, you know, this intolerable poor communicator, et cetera, et cetera. Should I just, uh, Mark, go through and um, call on Frank Um, or do you want to do that? Yeah, Um, yeah,
0: Frank is up. Uh, Thank you for that.
3: Yeah, I was just curious as to your stance on nature versus nurture as far as addiction goes. Yeah, so
1: I... I broadly categorize the risk factors of addiction into three buckets, nature, nurture, and neighborhood. And neighborhood is all often forgotten. And I think probably the most important risk factor today, which I can talk about briefly, but nature is certainly um, important. We know that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with alcohol addiction, you are more likely to become addicted to alcohol yourself, even if you are adopted outside of that alcohol using home. And if you look at the genetic data for all different types of mental illness, you see the most robust data for addiction. It's about 50% of the risk, 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted appears to be inborn or biological. It's complex. It's polygenic. It's not going to be a single gene that we're going to find. It's going to have something to do with a problem either in the accelerator or the brakes or a combination Enduring traits that people uh, that show up throughout people 's lives that are consistent associated with the risk of addiction is impulsivity, not being able to put a break between the desire to do something and to do something, but on the other hand. Um, I, I see people with addiction as some of the most tenacious uh, people in the world because they're willing to work that much harder uh, to get their drugs. So it's it, uh, you know we don't know what it is, but it's a it's definitely an inborn vulnerability. Nurture is a big piece of it too. We know that if you're raised in a household where um, substance use um, as for recreation or as a coping strategy is either explicitly or implicitly condoned you're more likely to uh, develop an addiction. If you are uh, experienced significant childhood trauma, you're more likely to develop an addiction. Uh, if you have a co-occurring mental illness, you're more likely to develop an addiction. So those are all risk factors that have to do with, uh, you know, the environment, but also with what you're born with. And then the third bucket is neighborhood. If you are raised in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted to them. And we now live in a world neighborhood where drugs in all different forms are available at the touch of a finger, right? The digital devices themselves are addictive. We've got digital media is addictive. We can access all kinds of drugs and the the world supply chain gets them right to our door. Drugs are more potent, more novel, more novel, uh, they're greater quantity. So that means that we're living in a time and place unprecedented in human history when we've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction because of the incredible
2: overabundance of highly reinforcing substances and behaviors. Okay.
4: Jerry, activity-holic, alcoholic. And I used activity-holic first because 31 years ago, I read an article Workaholism, the Respectable Addiction. I just finished writing a book and getting it published. And as I was doing that, Uh, I realized I grew up very rural, no playmates my own age, all emotions were to be buried, so I don't have any emotional skills, and realized I was fully workaholic as a human doing. Uh, But when I put myself into counseling for uh, the workaholism, 30 years ago, they said, You're probably an alcoholic. Well, but my alcoholism was all about not being able to control it. And what I've seen over my life is I've been undoing my childhood. Mm. And I just realized a lot of this in the last couple of years. And I'm now turning 83. Wow. Uh, So, in, in, in my work with uh, alcoholics over the 30 years, what I've seen is the childhood is key, and we learn how our parents behave, and we mimic that the rest of our life. There was no emotion shown in my family. My parents had gotten ostracized out of their families because of a mixed Christian marriage. And also we very isolationist. Mm-hmm. So that was my whole ch- learning childhood. I became intellectually driven and that's still my drive. Uh, but uh, yeah, we have to own it. And we have to change, recognize it. And yes, we have to have all these polarities that are out there for us to experience life. Otherwise I would see us as robots. So we need the ones that are saying, "Oh, you, I, I'm going to do this on my own," and I'm going to, ha- and then I got to have the ones that are going to go to the conflicts. There's n- everything I look at is a polarity, mm-hmm. and we are just one set of the polarities in in the world, and we're necessary for others to understand and come to grips with their own uh, mm-hmm. issues. Right. If I don't have someone to, that's mimicking or doing the same thing, I can't relate to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I've become very much more isolated uh, recently, and I can't stand TVs or movies or at all. I don't do those at all. If mm-hmm. I can't be written, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. I don't even care to have a podcast or anything like that, that in video. It's got to be written, and I think that's out of my childhood because there was no TV. I look at the cell phone in my hand today. It was this radio sat on the shelf. The thank phone hang.
1: Gary, let me just uh, thank you so much for that. That that's really uh, so important. You know, it, uh, when we think about sort of these templates that we put on the world, it's really true that our early upbringing and our caregiving and the modeling that we have from the people around us plays such a crucial role. Of course, we can revise those templates as we go along, which you have done uh, here in your 80s, which is absolutely remarkable, which really speaks to the ongoing plasticity of the human brain and our ability to learn. One of the definite recurring themes I see with people who develop severe addictions in adulthood is that they do grow up in families that invalidate their emotional life. Um, So when they express anger or sadness, uh, the the caregivers are either unable to respond empathically to that or simply invalidate that the child is having um, anger or sadness. And as a result, that child lacks the skills to either identify what their emotions are or to process those emotions. So it's definitely true that giving our children um, emotional language and emotional awareness is is really key, especially in the world that we live in now. It's such a complicated world. On average, we live so much longer. We have uh, a lot of social interactions, but many of them um, are with people who are geographically disparate from us. And so it's it's a very fascinating new time. And so identifying, you know, maybe the ways in which caregivers uh, in our early childhood were not ideal and learning more adaptive strategies is key. But what you don't want to do is get stuck in that part of your life either, or do what I do, which is see it as, you know, more one-sided than it is, for example, getting back to my mother, she's in many ways an absolutely delightful person, but I can get into this space where I don't want to see that part of her because I just want to validate Um, you know, my, my victimhood narrative. So anyway, that's just food for thought. Mary.
5: Hi, I'm Mary. Um, I thank you so much, Mark, for bringing the speaker. It's been amazing. Um, A lot of food for thought. My question is like out of putting the substances in my body and um, finding my dopamine in that way. So now this dopamine comes from things that are less harmful like social media which is what I really really struggle with um it and it's hard like I know that it's hard when but like I have to moderate instead of just cut out completely but like I will um I will try to be falling asleep and I'll pick up my phone even though I know I'm gonna stay awake I have admitted now that I stay awake but I'll be like five more minutes and then in an hour later I'll still have a struggle putting my phone down and then I'll be and then it's really affecting my sleep hygiene and all this other stuff that I'm trying to work on. So is there, do you have any tips on how to, it, other than just like total abstinence from social media and those types of things. And I switch from like, I'll switch from one to the other. Cause I'll be like, Oh, okay. Reddit's my problem now. Okay. I can go to Instagram, but then it's the next one. And I just get addicted to that one just easily. So I really need help with like that stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. I hear you. And I, I think I know I can relate, and I bet a lot of other people on this call, to the kind of switching from from one addiction to another, to more socially acceptable addictions or more normalized addictions with social media certainly is that, but, you you know, recognizing, wow, this really is a compulsive behavior that interferes with my self-care and my goals and my values, and yet here I go. So, um, what, what can be helpful for this is uh, what you know what what we call self-binding strategies, where instead of um, hoping that your willpower alone will work in the moment uh, of engaging with that digital drug, you instead create self-binding strategies that anticipate the lack of willpower, and you you do that in advance. And there are different types of self-binding strategies. You've already used one of them, which is categorical self-binding strategies, where you say to yourself, okay, I can't do Reddit, but probably I can do Facebook, right? And sometimes that works for people. It sounds like, uh, and for like video games, it might be like, oh, I can't play League of Legends, but I can play some other video game. For me, I got addicted to romance novels. I gave those up and now I read you know, spy novels. And For the most part, I can't manage that either. You know, I binge on that and stay up too late, all that same sort of thing. So, you know, it's like, well, fiction, certain types of genre fiction is just like, that's a drug for me. Um, So other ways to manage that are to use chronological self-binding. And this is where we um, use time as a way to moderate our consumption for example, um, good examples with food, people are using intermittent fasting now. They're saying, okay, I'm only going to eat between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. I can eat whatever I want in those hours, but before nine and after five, I'm not going to eat. And so you could do something similar with social media. I actually do that with my devices. I um, try not to get on my device before about eight or nine in the morning. And come four or five in the afternoon, I really try hard not to go back on and kind of close things out. It's hard and, you know, I'll break it. But in general, um, that's very a good way for me to do. And then I have other activities that I do in the evening to try to relax. Um, So that's that kind of chronological self-binding can be helpful. And then there's like literal geographic or physical barriers that people have found to be effective. For example, there are these devices now, things like the kitchen safe, where you put your device in there and you put a timer on it and you cannot get it out until that timer has expired. Um, and so that, you know, that works great. Um, maybe you don't need a kitchen safe. Maybe you just need to turn off, power down your your thing, delete the apps, power it down and put it in another part of the room and have some tech-free spaces that are kind of like tech-free sanctuaries where you might want to put up other symbols that are more nature symbols or remind you that this is a tech-free space and that when you go in there, there are no devices allowed in there. So you've created an actual physical space that's sort of sacred, and this this gets to the sacred piece of it too, or the spiritual piece, somehow um, endowing certain activities with a spiritual aspect and giving them more power and
6: making them distinct from other activities. Okay, hi, thank you. I was so happy to hear this speaker meeting. I'm so, so happy to hear it. And um, being a happy listener, it's making me listening to open my arms to hearing that story or about stories, the story about stories. So like earlier I was thinking, um, this comes with, you know, learning like, like childhood things and upbringings. I was thinking that when I was cutting, I was cutting um, like veggies for chili, and it was making the same similar noise that I hear when I'm in a healthcare when I'm in my job, a healthcare job, and it's so so random. Like like this person holds a cup and like hits it on the cup to make the noise to get all of the the um, liquid out. Like always, and that's a, like a really strange thing but i'm thinking maybe that same noise sounds like cutting like maybe that's part of the upbringing so hearing things like that just made like sense and you know that's really a stronger like compassion that i can hold and also the diary thing um i'm want to say many many kudos to your child or your daughter because it was the same thing that happened to me when someone read it i don't even remember who it was now, but somebody read it and then I threw it away and I never uh, like to write any. I don't like to write. I don't like paper. I don't like to write down anything. Um, I'm a millennial. So, I mean, with it being in how I like my certain ways and stuff, (laughs) I only like to do it digital. Even now, I wrote all of these um, digital notes so that I would remember when I was talking to you and thinking you and I'm going to erase it after I read it, <laughs> but thank yeah. you so much, and thank you, Anna.
1: Oh, you're welcome, and you know that I feel so, my daughter actually said to me that now she thinks twice about anything that she writes in her diary because I violated her privacy in that way, so it's, um you, again, it's very hard to admit these transgressions, And when we do, we have to suffer the consequences of the ways that we've harmed people. And we need to open ourselves to hearing about it. And I feel terrible because maybe she'll go the way that you have done and never really keep a diary again, which was so helpful to her. And I have to carry that, right? I have to hold that harm that I've done to her. But on the other hand, the advantage of of that is the advantage to me is that, um, you know, I I will try never to invade someone's privacy like that again, because I can see how much I really deeply harmed my own daughter in doing that, but I wouldn't have known how I'd harmed her unless I had told her the truth. It would have been very easy to never tell her she's very unsuspicious or she was before I told her, and uh you know, so that's that's what's I think so important to recognize is that We suffer grave consequences when we tell the truth, and and we should, you know, and we should feel shame and that shame then becomes a deterrent for repeating
2: that behavior in the future. So thanks, Michelle. Rose.
7: Thank you, Anna, and thank you for putting on this event. And and thank you for being so all inclusive, I can have my family here as well. I didn't know what you were going to talk about tonight, Anna, and I didn't, um, and it was a bit of a surprise and very serendipitous. Um, I've been thinking about truth telling as part of my recovery, particularly in relation to doing my step four work. And that is, I go into free fall when I'm around people who I believe are being dishonest. Or dishonest with me and, and my, um, all, all bets are off. If I'm, you know, people might genuinely be being dishonest or I might just be perceiving it, but then I, I can't tell which way's up. Mm. And that's when I really get out of, you know, my behavior becomes unmanageable. It's a really at the heart of my unmanageability. So it was really interesting what you said today, because that makes some sense around it, that that's really triggering for parts of my brain that aren't able to cope logically when I feel in that situation. So I'm um, really grateful for that. And um, it's given me lots to think about. I'll look forward to your book that includes lots of information about truth telling in because that, that's really. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a chapter, I think it's chapter seven in Dopamine Nation. It's called uh, Radical Truth Telling. And all I can tell you is that, um, you know, this is something that I absolutely learned from patients in recovery. And then began to try to incorporate it in my own life and saw the value of it in my own life. And like you, because I put effort now into trying to not be a liar. By the way, I grew up in a family of liars. Um, both of my parents lied about things large and small. Um, and I, I, I I'm, I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to go rant about my mom again. Uh, She has many wonderful qualities, but she has a very loose affiliation with the truth. And, um, and I I, I can hardly listen to her tell a story because I've just gotten another version from my sibling, which was completely different right from the version that my mom is now telling in which like, you know, she's the hero she's always the hero in her stories. Anyway, it's hard, right? Because if you're trying hard to tell the truth in your own life and you're suffering the consequences from having told the truth, and then you have to deal with somebody who is not doing that and doesn't seem to be suffering the consequences from it, it is really hard. You know, you have to you have to have kind of a calm center place where you know that in the long run, this is the right thing to do for you and the people around you think about that that kid in the marshmallow experiment and the plenty mindset how destructive it is for kids to have adults around them who who lie
2: and who don't keep their commitments so thanks for sharing that rose uh i'm tim
3: uh thank you for being here today uh you've highlighted the truthfulness part which i think is an important part of uh of being uh personally responsible, which is one leg of uh, being in recovery. Uh, The second part seems to be community. I listened to a recent podcast on Radio Lab that had an interesting thing about some research that's been done of what people get from connections with other people. Uh, How do you see that as an important part of our recovery model that people are doing in 12-step recovery and meetings and so forth?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, so you know, sorry, Becco. Yeah, so, um, I I think, you know, it's generally known, and I agree that community um, is essential for recovery, and that community is the antidote to addiction. I always like to highlight that you can be part of a really robust community and still get addicted. And then isolate yourself from those loving people. So it's not just that, you know, it's people who don't have community who become addicted. Um, addiction can lead to isolation even in a healthy community. But what we have to do is we have to find our way back to our community. What is not all that clear is exactly how to do that. And so landing on the radical truth telling is kind of a simple tool that we any of us can choose to engage in every day when we wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, I'm not gonna tell a single lie today. I'm not, not even gonna smudge the truth a little bit, which is again, very, very hard um, to do. And But when we observe ourselves doing that, we can also learn a lot about ourselves. Um, so uh, I think you know figuring out, giving people like, okay, yeah, community is important, intimacy is important. How do I create intimacy, right? How do I make that happen? Because um, for some people it's really, really hard Here in Silicon Valley, we have a lot of people who are completely separated from themselves emotionally. And this gets back uh, to Jerry a little bit um, where his whole emotional self, he was simply cut off from it. And uh, we have a lot of people like that here in in the Silicon Valley of California where uh, because rational thought is considered so preeminent, people are, and because we live in a largely secular world, People are completely cut off from their emotional selves. So I think one of the ways to help people recapture community and build intimacy with other people is that they need to um, tune into their emotional selves and to share that side of themselves, not just their rational selves.
8: All right. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I I work with um, queer and trans teenagers in foster care. So, you know, they're all bringing a sense of trauma and, uh, and you know, a life that was not sunshine and roses, right?
2: Right.
8: And some of them uh, use lying as a coping mechanism. And I'm, I'm thinking of one client in particular, 13 compulsive liar, who just, you know, avoids any kind of conflict and tries to courts all, every positive possible through lying. And so my question is, do you think that there is a way to help someone who is kind of stuck in reptile brain to get to the prefrontal cortex to to stop the lying behavior and see the value in truth telling?
1: Yeah. Wow. What a powerful example, because these are kids who have, you know, kind of the severest trauma that I could imagine, right. Where they don't have caregivers uh, or empathic caregivers early on when they're so vulnerable, Um, really heart-wrenching. And I, two would probably become, you know, a pathological liar to survive in, in those kinds of situations. What everybody needs to change their behavior is a feed forward cycle of positive feedback where they try something new and see that the reaction that they get is positive and different from what they were anticipating. So I think that's, it just has to really start small and probably start with the small lies. So for example, I had a patient who said that when he was in his addiction, he was in the lying habit, which meant that if he was getting lunch at Burger King and his friend called him, he would say he was at McDonald's. If he was at McDonald's, he would say he was Burger King. Like It didn't make any sense. There was no utility at all in the lie, but he was just in the lying habit. So you might talk with this uh, person, this young person, about the lying habit and the lack of utility and how it really can become a habit, an unconscious one, how it comes out of a place of self-protection that made sense at one point, but it no longer makes sense because now it's spread to lies that are irrelevant And also this person's in a new environment where she doesn't need to lie anymore to get her needs met. And so have her try to go through even just one 24-hour period, because actually lying in a way can be addictive itself, right? Kind of the intrigue and the adrenaline and all people can get excited by that. Try to, you know, have her think about it in a recovery framework and say, you know, hey, can you be abstinent from lying for a single day? Um, Let's see how it goes. What feelings came up for you when you thought about telling the truth about where you were getting lunch. Like, cause for her hiding is probably kind of a, a way she keeps some power, you know, in a in a circumstance of utter helplessness and learned helplessness. So what are, you know, can she give it a try and see if she can let it go and what other ways she can get her needs met?
9: Thank you. Um, a real honor to hear you, Anna,
8: and uh, to hear everyone's questions and shares. Uh, great to see you live. Um, a, a little bit on shame and i know you mentioned shame as a deterrent from repeating uh, a certain pattern but but i wonder about this uh, radical honesty is it important at all to uh, be radically honest provided you're in a safe environment or a safe container so that uh, almost protect yourself from toxic shame I just wondered if yeah. you could speak to that a little yeah, bit.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jay. That's such a good point, and I do talk about in my book the cycle of destructive shame versus the cycle of pro-social shame. And so, destructive shame, um, and and like, sh- and it's really about who you're with and what your community is, right? Because if you're if you're being radically honest in an environment where people are literally shunning you, or they themselves are, you know, um, impaired in some way and can't rise to the occasion then of course you know that's not going to be a positive experience and then the lying but the lying itself is the hiding and perpetuates the addiction as a way of avoidant coping so the, you know that's one of the real advantages of a community like this or 12 step groups where you know sh- uh, where telling the truth is is a is a is a key value and instead of being shunned for you know being addicted you're actually you have real add value in that group, right, as a newcomer or wherever you are, um, you know, you provide uh, key social goods to that community. So you're you're absolutely right. Sh- shame can work both ways. Um, and you would not be wanting to be radically honest with somebody who was going to use that information in ways that would harm you or if being radically honest, frankly, would harm them in some way, right? The problem is we can be very, we can easily rationalize sort of why we can't tell somebody the truth, which is really just a rationalization and not really um, a kind of a consideration for them or a consideration of um, real life concerns. But yeah, th- that's absolutely key. And thanks for um, making that point.
8: Thanks. Sorry. I was trying to unmute. Uh, yes. Uh, wonderful to hear you, Dr. Lemke. Thanks for being here. And uh, thanks uh, to Mark. He he always lines up world-class speakers. So uh, I, I appreciate both of you. Um, I'll try to be quick because there are other people. Uh, two quick comments and then a question. Um one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years was called Atomic Habits by James Clear and it had all sorts of he goes into the neuroanatomy of uh habits and why we get into bad habits and why we get into good habits and how to break bad habits and, and encourage good it was really useful I mean there's just a lot of things that could really apply have you have you heard of the book
1: I've definitely heard of it I haven't read it I'm embarrassed to say but it's on my list
8: Okay. Okay. And then the marshmallow test reminds me uh, of uh, uh, um, in recovery, dogs have always been really important to me. And starting when they're puppies, one of the basic exercises I've always done is to put high value treats in front of them and make them wait for it. And initially with a four month old puppy, you have to restrain it, but it very quickly gets the idea that you you give it a release and then it can get the, the treat. And um, I've always done what I call jackpotting, you know, that you put one treat down, make the dog wait, if they can wait 30 seconds, they get the treat and then I jackpot, boom, 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 treats on the ground. And they very quickly learn that there's a re- an extra reward for waiting. And by about nine months old, I mean, I have been able to put treats down and leave the room for five minutes and come back and it's And that is such a foundational skill for any kind of training. You know, I've watched police dogs being trained. I've watched assistance dogs being trained for blind people, but just that basic skill of being able to kind of, uh, impulse control. It just, it tells me there's something about the mammalian brain that uh, just does really, really well with that. Um, What I wanted to ask you is um, I'm reading more and more about meditation. I've gotten interested in it. I I haven't done too much with it yet, but when you talk about the prefrontal cortex and making that more powerful as far as inhibiting, uh, that's kind of a meditation thing, it seems like, that prefrontal cortex inhibiting um, the amygdala and some of the other emotional centers so I wanted to get your take on the value of meditation. And then it seems like um, psychedelics have, are becoming in vogue. I, I keep seeing a lot about psychedelic research. Um, and i wondered if you have any thoughts about either of those in terms of psychiatry and addiction in particular.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, meditation is now sort of... Um car for the course in mental health treatment. Uh, We we, we recommend it often because it seems to be a kind of quasi-spiritual albeit still reasonably secular type of practice that doctors feel comfortable recommending and it's been adopted from eastern religious and spiritual traditions in a secular way that I think makes it accessible uh to a lot of people it's it's not for everybody um but there are so many different types of meditations walking meditations sitting meditations lying meditations meditations where you focus on your breath meditations where you don't focus that you know you can every you know almost everybody can find a form of meditation that that's useful for them there are studies showing that meditation increases dopamine release in the reward pathway. So that's good. Um, and as I always talk about, it's it's a kind of a healthy uh, type of dopamine because it requires that investment up front. Um, I, I have, I, the last time that I read the literature or, or tried to get a summary of the, of the literature on, on meditation, I don't think it was particularly stimulating the prefrontal cortex. Um, I think it was working through different um, circuits, kind of default circuits and resting circuits and like synchronization resting mode circuits, um, which is interesting and similar circuits to those that are engaged when people are are in prayer. So, and then as far as um, psychedelics, yeah. So the media hype is way, way um, outside of the actual evidence. The evidence that we have so far is based on very small, short-term studies, looking at the use of psychedelics like mushrooms or psilocybin for the treatment of things like depression, alcohol addiction, um, PTSD. The problem is that the studies are, it's very hard to get a reasonable control group in these studies because people who get psychedelics clearly know it, and the people who don't get psychedelics clearly know they didn't get them. And almost all of the samples that get recruited for those are people who like psychedelics and want to be on psychedelics and anticipate that they're going to like psychedelics. So it's at the end of the day, it's very difficult to say um, you know, what, what the studies really mean, uh, because you have a bunch of people in the control group who didn't get psychedelics who are sad about that and know they didn't get them. And a bunch of people who are in the psychedelic group who got them and are happy about that In general, I'm pretty skeptical of um, like a pharmacologic intervention to treat a chronic relapsing and remitting disorder like addiction. So um, I just think we need a lot more studies. And also really important to know that psychedelics are addictive. So you will read in the lay press that they're not addictive, but that is absolutely untrue. We see patients all the time who repeatedly use psychedelics in harmful ways. They often rationalize that they're trying to have a spiritual experience, which is different in their mind from getting high. But if you look at the spirituality um, measures uh, that they use in these studies, they sound a whole heck of a lot like getting high. Um, So, you know, we don't really even know what people are talking about when they're talking about having a spiritual awakening and, the you know, the repeated compulsive use of psychedelics to have more spiritual awakenings really ends up being the same thing as addiction. Um, I think it was Ringo, Ringo Starr of the Beatles, who said, sure, psych, uh, you know, psychedelics are great, but you only need to use them once. Um and that ends up not really being, you know, how people are using them, especially young people and especially now with microdosing. So.
9: Hi. Thank you so much. And um, this has been amazing um, on a lot of levels. And I should have also been taking digital or physical notes to kind of put together what questions I wanted to ask you, because they've just been parading across my mind as as we've talked about a lot of different things. One of the things that kind of stuck for me is thinking back about my parents. My parents were not liars, but they were also not particularly forthcoming with their stories. It was only after my mom passed, my dad passed a couple of years later and I was the executor and heir. So I got to deal with all his stuff and going through his papers, I found out all this stuff about them that I had no clue about, um, including my mom had had a previous marriage that she got annulled based on fraud Accusing the her husband and f- f- get, get fraught, um, a little secret. My dad apparently was. My dad had been in the navy. Got kicked out. I have no idea why. But I've always wondered <laughs> whether that had something to do with alcohol or drugs. Um, um, then he joined the merchant marine, and by World War II, had worked his way up to ship's captain, and then was in you know commanding ships carrying troops and and stuff across the North Atlantic in convoys during the war, dodging U-boats, amazing story. And I heard some of those stories, but I never heard a peep about the fact that he was also apparently a communist. And (laughs) as early as 1942, um, I found a letter from the state department saying, we're not sure we're going to renew your Siemens passport because of this, that and that accusations that have been made. And, and, um, and, oh, that was a total secret, too. and yeah.
6: um, That's And they were older.
9: They were probably because of the war. I mean, they were in their mid to upper 30s when I was born. Um, maybe that had something to do with it. Um, don't know. But also, I find myself wondering, I wasn't that curious about them either. I wasn't asking questions. It was like, right. I was this alienated kid who yeah. just I guess, wanted them to go away or something. Well,
1: um, I mean- you know that that you have a culture in a family, right? And that that culture, you clearly sense that was not a culture in which you asked asked parents questions. But this is a this is so interesting because one of the things I really advocate for, and I talk about it in Dopamine Nation, is I advocate for transparent um, parenting, where where we share much. We sh- I, I believe we need to share much much more with our children about our lives, and in particular, our failures. I think one of the things parents fear is that if they tell their kids about how they messed up, you know, the kid will be like, oh, I, I'm, I can do that too. But but really what kids need to know is that, you know, we're human and that we make these mistakes and then they want to figure out, well, how did you overcome that problem? And we're really imparting to them, you know, really valuable wisdom. Like when I think about Rose, you know, I don't know, I, I, I sense Rose has kids, I'm not sure. Uh, but you know she's in re- she's yeah thumbs up she's got kids so you know she's in recovery and she's you know trying to walk that hard path and my my recommendation to my patients is like you know educate your kids about you know i mean not to the point where it's gratuitous and you're burdening them but to some extent you know educate them about what you're going through especially things you know you've messed up on um i think it's super super important that we do that especially in this age of information overload where our kids have access to so much more information than we ever had, or than that humans have ever had in the history of humankind, and so their task is going to be to filter. Well, what's true and what isn't? What's good and useful, and what should I throw away? And so, part of what we can do as parents is talk openly about all of the information that's out there, and you know what to make of it. And so, you know, so creating an atmosphere of civil discourse and tolerant dialogue and creating an atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes and you're not going to be shunned for your mistake, but you are going to be, you do need to tell the truth and make amends and try to do better.
9: um, If I could ask you about something else. So one thing I've noticed about um, AA recovery is that to me, the most probably the most life-changing part of recovery for me, besides just abstaining from the drugs that were ruining my life, was the inventory process of challenging the stories I tell myself and finding my part in the things that bother me so that I can get off the feeling of victim and the blaming of others and just the continuing cycle of, um, of, the, of just being turned up on all my pet peeves and things like that, but like, <laughs> if I, if I bring up one more thing about social uh, social media. I definitely, it's just so obvious to me how how much I crave likes and positive responses on social media, and I'm sure that's craving the dopamine. But we read so much about how the uh, social media algorithms are designed to for to. Block in engagement, and that the engagement is most effective by just getting people riled up, is that still dopamine that like being riled up, or is that something else? Is that more like adrenaline?
1: Well again, this is this match between your own unique wiring and the drug, so some people will get their dopamine through perceived social connection and the likes, but other people love will love the adrenaline and the outrage right? And the and the, and the rageaholics. So you've got different temperaments who are going to be going for slightly different drugs, even on social media. One thing that we know is true is that when we, we experience an emotion at the same time that another person is experiencing that same emotion, we get dopamine from that. That's very reinforcing. Now you multiply that by tens of thousands or even millions of people experiencing joy or outrage or whatever it is, that's a whole lot of dopamine sloshing around.
9: Yeah. Uh, Thanks for coming. And um, so there's a variety of 12-step fellowships, alcoholics, narcotics, overeaters, and such. And what can we do as individuals and as those organizations to, you know, our primary purpose is to carry the message? And how can we best do that with this Certainly more advanced science than the big book from 1939.
2: Well, I mean,
1: what's so amazing about the big book is that neuroscience is discovering truisms that the big book discovered 100 years ago, right? So it's it's not like, you know, neuroscience is saying, oh, you know, do something completely different than what the big book said. It's just neuroscience is saying, oh, this is how it actually works in the brain, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so I'm not sure that, you know, anything needs to change except for maybe, you know, an updating of sort of the language, some of the stories I'm not involved in any of that. I, I know that there's talk and and uh, of doing that to make it more accessible. Um, you know, what's so to me also amazing about, about AA and other 12 step groups is that it, it's really the most remarkable grassroots organization and social movement of the last century uh in in large part because it has remained independent non-monetized you know in our culture today for something not to be monetized it's like you know it's like a miracle um but that's really at the heart of of the success because that allows it to be nimble and responsive to the needs of the changing culture and of course what's allowed us to thrive and and survive for millions of years is our ability to adapt to our changing environment and our environment is definitely changing
2: Oh, no, well thanks so
3: much, Andrew.
1: Yeah, we're grateful Jeb and then Bill. Okay.
3: Yeah, this has been a wonderful hour. Um and you know, I well, first of all, I'm I'm long retired, probably 20 years retired as a uh, as a as a mental health therapist. And I've been on the road of recovery, uh 12-step recovery for more than 40 years. But I keep discovering things about myself that are important. I've always tried to embrace and be honest about the several diagnoses I've had from um teenagers as anxiety disorder and then substance abuse disorder, and then eventually later on getting the you know bipolar and uh diagnosis and then PTSD and then complex PTSD and ADHD. Uh And it's helpful for me to talk about those things and not condemn myself for those conditions. However, I've also, when I was, I recognized long ago that I'm neurodivergent. And one of the really helpful things for me has been um, uh, the the embracing neurodivergence meeting on Sundays, and Kevin's a part of that, I probably shouldn't have said that, but they're le- and and it's helped me to look, one of the books we're dealing with is embracing or unmasking of autism. And I've identified in there and then used, of course, some online tests for, you know, screening tests. And I've really identified with now with trying to embrace the fact that I I'm not good about telling the whole truth in many situations. And I'm practicing that. And it's interesting when, when I try to take care of myself instead of other people, they're not used to it because I've always tried to take care of other people's emotional life and I've neglected my own. So even speaking up here today is practice and saying, you know, I have to pay attention and take care of myself. And your book is just so valuable for me in doing a better job of being true to myself, to use an AA phrase. So anyway, I just to get I guess I wanted to talk about myself and tell you how much <laughs> I admire
2: your work. <laughs> Um, yeah. Thank,
1: thank you, Jeb. Thank you for sharing of yourself, and I, I, it's wonderful that you've had this life of uh, you know discovery, and that you're still curious about yourself and your work and the world, and that there are still these new conceptual frameworks you know, that are helpful for you, like the neurodivergent framework. I'm sure very validating if you're someone who's neurodivergent to finally have it kind of like, oh, yeah, you know that that's me, right. That's always been the kinds of things that I've struggled with. And to know that you're not alone, that must be wonderful.
3: And I just wonder if when I get busy trying to take care of the other person rather than myself, if there is some sort of a dopamine or other hormone reward,
1: and that's why. Right. I I mean, Mm-hmm. Right. Even these maladaptive patterns that we develop, there must be something inherently rewarding that we experience about them that keeps them entrenched. At, well, at one point, they were adaptive and helpful. They released dopamine. So now we're still going after the dopamine, even, even though it's not actually helpful and adaptive.
3: But now when I do speak up, I do feel it physically in my body. That dopamine, dopamine reward. Oh,
2: good, good, so, good, uh, good. Thanks good. for
3: suggesting that to me with your
1: work. <laughs> yeah. Well, good, I'm okay. glad. Yeah. All right. So we have Janice and
2: Bill. Hi, I'm Janice. Thank hey, you again. for allowing my question. I thought I had my hand up earlier, but then I noticed it was down again. So I appreciate you taking my my question. And thank you so much for being here today. that That was really wonderful hearing you. Um, I just would like your take on um, as far as the community part of this goes, um, you know, how do you feel about um, when you have um, relatives that are somewhat toxic to your um, happiness? Because I have a sister that sounds a lot like your mother. (laughs) <laughs> she's got a lot of wonderful traits, but she, um, you know, she's got some really annoying traits too. And, um, you know, I feel myself just creating more distance because I don't want to deal with the, the toxic part.
6: Mm-hmm. And
2: is that healthy or not? Um, uh, you know,
1: my is, yeah. Such a great question. And I don't have an easy answer for you. Um, You know, the easy answer would be, oh, she's toxic, you know, get, you know, get rid of her, separate yourself, but that's, that's not community, right? A community is a place where we can be broken together um, and still somehow, you know, manage to make it work and, 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 and hold each other in our brokenness. So, you know, I, I think that my advice would be, is there some kind of middle line where you can. Either engage her around her toxicity and see if maybe she can, you know, not too old to change. We've heard it from a lot of people here who even in the latter decades are making changes in their behavior. Maybe she doesn't even know, right? And maybe you could tell her and maybe she would appreciate it and make a change. Um, I've tried that with my mom and it just doesn't work. Uh, so I'm guessing you have tried it too my husband is very, my husband and kids are helpful to me because we'll have an interaction together with my mom. And this is helpful for me. And I'll walk away from that. And I just, my head will be exploding for like all of the ways in which that was so like, she was so toxic. And my husband and kids will be like, no, not really. I mean, yeah, she's, you know, she's just who she is. She just does that. And so then it brings into my awareness all of that Water under the bridge, and how my whole brain is primed to respond to her in ways that is that it's not true for other people. And of course, it's a function of having been raised by her and all of the accumulated missteps on her part and on my part. Because I think she has a similar reaction to me. I know she does. Um, So then it's like, okay, let me step outside of this and just like have some empathy for both of us. Like how sad is it that we can't get along, right? Even though we love each other and want to get along. And I think that that's that's very helpful for me. Again, kind of a little bit of a reality check around my own distorted, heightened reactions to this person who is highly flawed, but at the end of the day may not be any more flawed than I am.
2: Okay, thank you. And I also wanted to tell you, just by coincidence, I had marshmallows by my bed, and when you started talking about them, I started eating them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all righty.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: <laughs> How about Bill? And then we'll go ahead and end.
10: Uh, thank you for taking my question. Now I feel like I'm on the spot because I'm the last one.
1: No, don't uh, feel the uh,
0: uh,
10: I First of all, I've never heard of you, but I'm I've enjoyed this and I'm going to buy your book, both of them. Uh, and my mother sounds just like yours.
1: Our mothers are in some other group somewhere complaining about us. You do know that. Absolutely.
10: Right? <laughs> yeah. Am I, is she toxic or am I? Right. Um, but my question is, is about social media and not just social media, but addictions in general. I, now that I've quit drinking I feel like I have to quit social media. I feel like I have to quit sugar. I feel like I have to quit cleaning the house because everything is an addiction now. And uh, people, I live in Alaska and it's very common up here that everybody's addicted to outdoor activities, uh, hiking, skiing, snowshoeing. And, you know, you see that as a good thing. But now that I'm in AA, I see that they have an addiction And, and are all addictions bad. And where do we draw the line? Do I do I have to like shut off my electricity eventually? Because I'm addicted to that too. Where do, we, where, where do we draw the line?
1: Right. Yeah, such a great point, Bill, and a great, great way to end. So I think it's important that we don't broaden the category of addiction so so much that we question every single behavior. The simplest definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. So again, it's an addiction when it crosses the line into being harmful. Of course, it isn't easy to know when we've crossed that line. That's the problem. When we're chasing dopamine, we don't really see true cause and effect And we can be in denial for a long time about the harm that we're causing to ourselves and others in our addiction. So this is not not easy to know, but I think that's that's where we have to be definitional. And so if you're engaging in behaviors that are on this balance of things, more helpful than harmful, then you're not addicted, then it's a hobby or a passion or a coping strategy. Um, But having said that, I will say that modern life is very addictogenic because essentially we are engaging our control circuits to conquer nature. And we have been very successful at doing that, science, innovation, technology. We can manipulate nature to the point of manipulating birth and death. And so, you know, in the way that we've been able to control everything, it's very difficult to then pull back on that sense of controlling in our lives. And we essentially now bookend all of our experiences with rewards, right? Well, I'm going to go to work, but when I come home, I'm going to watch my show or I'm going to have a beer or I'm going to, you know, who knows, look at pornography, right? And this is the, our ability now to arrange our lives down to the temperature in our houses and the time we wake up and go to bed and whether or not we you know um, get pregnant and if and how and when we die, it, it, it means that we're in this state of micro control, which actually is incredibly burdensome. What we would love to do is to surrender and feel that there's a power greater than ourselves that's playing some role in our lives but our rational brains make it very hard for many of us to embrace that concept. I know, for example, we've had a lot of rain here in Northern California. And I know I, for one, absolutely love the rain because it forces me to say, oh, look at it's coming down from the heavens. And um, I'm now very small in relation to this big wide world. So at the end of the day, Bill, I do think there's a spiritual solution here. um, And somehow we have to overcome our rational brains and learn how to surrender and not try to micro control but let just let our lives unfold
10: do you think there's a such thing as a good addiction like you mentioned reading books how can anyone say that's a bad thing but you're saying you have an addiction and I know people that read 200 books a year they're obviously addicted but is that really (laughs) a bad thing
1: Well, right. So, you know, again, I think this is going to come down to judgment calls is the is book reading harming that individual and harming the people around them, and interfering with their goals and values. Um, And these are subtle, these are subtle things and subtle determinations. But I think that if we sit quietly with ourselves, we can, we can answer those questions. Or maybe somebody else is telling us, right? Someone is saying, hey, you know, when we're having a family gathering, you're reading a book or you're on your phone or you want to watch your show. Um, so, you know, those are, it's, it's hard, Bill. It, it, these are hard questions, no easy answers.
10: Well, I thought you'd have the answer.
1: <laughs> I don't. But here's the thing: we're we're fighting the good fight, right? We're asking the questions and we're talking about it, and that's really what it's all about.
10: Thank you very much.
1: Well, everybody, it's been such a pleasure. These are been such a great questions, really, uh, you know, prodding me to think. And I really appreciate all of you and your thoughtful engagement with your lives, because I really think that that is a life well lived. Is where we're asking hard
2: questions, even if it doesn't necessarily give us easy answers.